Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. Yes, welcome to the news. Today we will begin indeed with Strike Talk. We'll get to that in a second. I'll tell you a little bit more about that in a second. It'll be followed by Emmy Talk, which seems like sort of, you know, tepid dishwater now because of the strike. Um, it's like Emmys. But anyway, we'll talk about Emmys. <laughs> and then we'll talk about Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, which I think can either be interpreted as a manifestation of some of the problems implicit in the the crisis that is helping to precipitate these two strikes in the sense that it's kind of IP in a whole larger category, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, that seems to be running out of gas. Or you could sort of say, no, this is actually why, you know, why this is all worth arguing about because there's a really good way to do movies of this type. And James Gunn, the director, has found it. We'll see what the panel has to say, which side they pick, or they may pick a whole other side that I hadn't thought about. That would be the usual course of things. Tanisha Dugan is associate uh, producer at Octopus Theatricals. Uh, Helder Mira is a multi- multimedia producer at Trinity College and co-host with Vivian Nabetta of the So Pretentious Podcast. Bill Usman is a professor of media studies at Sacred Heart University. So um, over the last seven days or so, uh, well, actually, over the last 75 days, the Writers Guild of America has been on strike. Uh, and then actually last night, Thursday night at midnight, uh, the strike by 160,000 uh, actors in SAG-AFTRA uh, happened. Uh, it is the first time since 1960 that both of these entities, both the writers and the actors, have been on strike in Hollywood. Everybody likes to mention the fact that at that time, the president of SAG, Screen, Screen Actors Guild, uh, was Ronald Reagan, um, the great labor <laughs> activist. So um, so this is, you know, it's uh, – and actually, uh, this is um, also the first um, WGA strike. Let's see. No, it's the first actor strike since 1980. Um, I think I have that right. So um, – so anyway, there's a lot to say about this, and since uh, Bill Usman chortled, uh, I'll, I'll have him start things off. I don't really have a specific prompt here. We've been sharing a lot of ideas over the course of the morning. I sent you guys a column that I wrote for Hearst. Uh, I don't know, Bill, where does this conversation begin for you? Well, the conversation begins with me because of my own political proclivities is right on, union strong. We should have more strikes in our society than we do uh, because the amount of exploitation is out of control. And this is a good indicator of it because, you know, people are tuned into this. You'll get more attention when it's the actors that we love and the people writing the shows that we love who are doing this. Then, you know, if it's someone working for some manufacturer, 
somewhere, even though we should all see ourselves as in this together because we are all laborers. It's easy to forget and it's easy to just kind of be smug and say, like, what do I care about Gwyneth Paltrow or Tom Cruise or, you know, Jennifer Aniston? But it's not just those people you know those people are actually in the very small minority and most of the people working in these industries have been really really terribly exploited um and continue to be so and the new technologies of streaming and ai is just exacerbating all of that and so of course we should be in support of this strike even if it means we might have to wait a little bit longer for you know our favorite show to come back right and Janisha, i want to hear whatever you, you have to say about this but just to build on what bill is saying I, I think we can go so far as to say it's not at all about tom cruise or matt damon or or emily blunt or uh, margot robbie and they've all been pretty stand up about this stuff and supporting the people really <laughs> affected by this but this is a labor the the, the sag the sag after labor agreement and the wga but specifically sag after really does affect more the working schmuck the guy who or or woman who is, you know, not in a featured role, is not getting $10 million a, a movie, and generously knocking that down to a mere $4 million so that Oppenheimer can get made or something. Mm-hmm. Um, this is about people who really live closer to uh, paycheck to paycheck, who are worried uh, about stuff like their health policies, which I don't think have been upgraded within that contract for a really long time, like decades. Um, and and so in, in that sense, it's not about our favorite actors, right? It's about the actors whose names we tend not to know. Yeah, you're absolutely right. But before I go down that rabbit hole, Fran Drescher for president, mm-hmm. does she follow Ronald Reagan? Uh, <laughs> Fran is the... Is the uh, head of uh, SAG-AFTRA and she had an incredible impassioned speech yesterday um, talking about uh, the strike. Um, People like to complain about the nanny state, so why not? (laughs) Why not? Exactly. But Colin, you're absolutely right and I'll actually go one better and go, it's Yes, this is about those working paycheck to paycheck. But really, this is a conversation about the middle class. This is about middle class writers and performers who are no longer a middle class, who are being pushed down into paycheck to paycheck, which is the American story right now. You talked mm-hmm. about health insurance. That's exactly right. That like this idea that it's every man for himself because we don't have comprehensive health insurance in this in this country, that we rely on our corporations and our jobs to provide that for us. And it is not cheap because of the way the government uh, has both subsidized health care profit making over uh, actual health care. It's it's a really interesting moment. And I think what's both good and bad about this this very visible strike happening within the culture sector is that most folks, like you said, see the work as frivolous, see the work as folks getting a chance to do something that makes them happy and how should they labor under conditions that please them, right? Mm-hmm. Labor should be hard and 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 uh, you should live for the weekend. You shouldn't love your life at every moment that you're that you're living. Um, and so I think there's a hard case to make, but I think that there is a visible and important case to make that the middle class in any sector is the lifeblood of every sector. Um, and we have to protect it. You know, you should be able to be a writer and be on a on on a show that has 
when it's all said and done, something like 60 episodes <laughs> and be able to get paid residuals for that. And yes, we want to be lazy about the metrics of streaming, but we can't be. We know we know sh- you know shareholders want to know how the money's being made. So there's a way to turn this back to the people who make the work um, if the will is there. Yeah, I want to come back to that because it's a really important point. But, you know, uh, Helder, another important point that Tanisha made was that idea, well, you're actors, like how hard can this be? Or you write television shows. Although, I don't know, we're going to be talking about Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 in the final segment today. And I was watching that movie thinking, what's it like to be like 60 on the call sheet here? My sense is you're like having to hang around in some location and probably not going back to a particularly nice place to sleep. And those look like long days on that movie. And if you're Chris Pratt, I'm sure everything possible is done to make you comfortable, and it still might not be comfortable. The idea that acting is an easy job, probably, particularly screen acting, that's probably a misconception. But Helder, feel free to talk about any aspect of this that you want. Well, first off, Tanisha is more the the actor in all of us, so (laughs) I feel like I'm getting her question but uh at the same time having spent uh, 16 days uh, 16 hour days on a 11 day shoot uh for like i think 50 dollars a day as a crew member um yeah it sucks and you don't get anything you you get shoved into uh at one point a submarine uh launch tube uh, um, uh that i had to like film from to get that pov <laughs> was lots of fun um and circling back to residuals that Tanisha brought up, one thing that we haven't mentioned um, thus far, as far as writers especially are concerned, is the fact that a lot of these IPs, the original writers aren't getting not only residuals, they're not even getting credit half the time. They get a thanks. Um, this has come up a lot with both Marvel movies and um, specifically Star Wars movies where Disney has kind of cut out the original writers that they then are adapting. It's one of the reasons why they're loving Disney specifically is loving to like just do live action versions of little mermaid lion King, things that they already own the rights to and already own the scripts to. And, you know, we're seeing like the original creators of say like Howard, the duck and, uh, and ghostwriter and people that have popularized writers or comic characters like the Hulk uh, and Peter David specifically, who I'm thinking of like asking for money via GoFundMe because of their health, because Marvel has completely cut them out of like earning residuals on characters or stories that are ending up in movies. Um, Same thing with like George Perez, who is beloved. Um, He actually got a a lot more respect, but at the same time, you know, was kind of cast aside and then only thanked at the very end when he was, you know, on his deathbed. So there's a lot of that that's happening that, you know, writers need to speak up to so that they get their share before any of they have to go down that road and this idea that ai is going to come along and just recreate or create new scripts that off of the ip is just ridiculous they're not going to capture the heart and soul of what a lot of these writers were capturing to begin with right but they don't care too i mean i i, I should say first of all i should declare that i was for i don't know, probably about a decade sag after a member it's a long story um but um you know and and you know, Bill, my attitude towards this whole thing is more sinister than even just the kind of bargaining points uh, of these two strikes. I really do believe that, you know, Bob Iger and, and David Zaslav and the rest of these titans, uh, for that matter, Jeff Bezos, who's warehouse strikers and Amazon Prime actors and writers are striking all at the same time. But what they really want is kind of what Helder is saying, and they don't care whether the heart and soul is in there. Uh, for them, a, a beautiful 
beautiful dream is to have IP that they own, a lot of actors that they've who've been digitally scanned into databases that can be manipulated infinitely. And you could just make a Transformer movie or a Fast and Furious iteration or, you know, whatever it, it is um, with, you know, 10 guys in, in, in some kind of, you know, tech lab. Uh, and and not only that, but they very carefully trained us to like that stuff, you know, and to lap it up and go, oh, that's pretty good. <laughs> I, yeah. I, I sure do love Fast and Furious. Uh, <laughs> so, I mean, I'm really worried about that. On the other hand, I think it is fair to say the industry itself is in trouble. Uh, theatrical box office is down about 25%. Um, what they now call linear television, like say ABC or something, is just a disaster with an oncoming younger cohort of people who will never watch that stuff, any of it. They just don't, doesn't mean anything to them. And the streaming thing to, to, Tanisha's point, they really haven't figured it out. You know, I mean, what we when when Netflix hiccuped about a year ago, we suddenly realized they don't really have a great business plan. The original business plan was all about market cap and building up subscriptions, but profitability was nowhere in the picture. So I don't even know what I'm asking you to say about all that. I'm kind of babbling, but it's a big mess, and it's a big mess on both sides, I guess. Yeah, it is, and you know the. the in some ways, like I understand where you're coming from, because the conversation about this has to be sprawling because there's so many factors that come into play. I mean, one of the things that you just touched on is that, as is always the case, the technology kind of outpaces us and the technology comes first. And then we're like, oh, we got to figure out how we're going to handle this, which I'm sure will come up again. Um, when the nose eventually does Oppenheimer, right? Because that's exactly what happened there. Like, oh, we can build these things. Let's just go ahead and build them and not really think about what, what the eventual outcome is. And you're also absolutely right that the ultimate dream of all capitalist inter in industries is to eliminate the workers completely. And that's why I refuse, even though it takes a little longer, to use the self-checkout at the grocery store, because it's just a scheme to not have to pay people for, you know, the work that they're doing. True. Just because DeSantis and Bob Iger are enemies doesn't make Bob Iger our friend. <laughs> the enemy right? of my yeah, yeah, who, yeah, sorry, the enemy of my enemy is my enemy. And you know, Tanisha, yeah. I don't mean to point paint a smiley face on this because I don't think there is one. There's no place to paint it. But there is a way in which, as we talk about this, we're really talking about a lot of the, the, what the moguls care about are these big number of projects, you know, that are going to make billions of dollars. Um, you know, in a way, I just sort of wonder if one of the signals we as consumers could send back to the industry is to start watching a little bit, spending a little bit more time with with smaller, small budget indie films, maybe go back and see a few plays or something. I mean, they've tried to teach us just to watch this IP driven stuff and almost nothing else. And, and one small act of rebellion might be just sort of turning towards other possibly even worthier things. I think so. And, and, you know, people make fun of me because I always say that this work, you know, it's not rocket science and it's not brain surgery, but it matters just as much because it's about us. It's about how we connect with each other. I think there is a cynicism about uh, what individuals want. I actually think we don't want what titans think they can seduce us into and I think we do look for and search for the deeper connections and the, and the stories that that tell us something about ourselves at the end of the day 
Um, and, and I think that will always pro proliferate. Um, it's interesting. I am curious and, you know, I come from a theater background and that has been my industry for many years. I am curious if the theater industry who is not affected by the strike is actually able to, let me use a, a capitalist word, leverage this moment <laughs> with live performance and, and really change their model away from this sort of um, eight days a week, you know, hunger salaries into one night only, you know, performances with stars that you might not ever, yes, you can maybe thread them. I won't use tweet anymore, thread them, right? But you don't get to sit in a room with them and breathe the same air with them. And maybe there's an opportunity in this moment for that kind of connection. Um, but but we'll see, we'll see, you know, I don't know if uh, the Titans actually care about whether it's a huge blockbuster movie or not. They just care that the beans, thank you, Bill, for the reference, that the beans keep keep being counted and the hill gets larger. And if they could figure a way to capitalize that with small projects, they would. It's just about how soon can we get as much nuts as we can as possible. Um, we got seeds. We got nuts. Yeah, we've got our. I mean, we got, yes, we got all the things. You know, all the things squirrelsy. We got our rest, rest, exactly. Raccoonsy. Uh, yes. Yeah, so, yeah. That's <laughs> nice. Nice setup to the to the yeah. next segment. But we do have to. Just, we'll just pivot a little bit, just for a few minutes, to the Emmys. As I say, they feel a little bit like ah, a, an afterthought yes. or an anticlimax at this point. I mean, you know, I mean, in a way, though, Bill, that's not fair because. A lot of the people who are nominated are people who are now going to have to go out on strike. Um, and, mm -hmm. you know, at a moment when they want, might want to be recognized for some of the things that they've done, acted or, or, or acted in or written, um, this doesn't really feel like much of anything right now. And the chance of a ceremony in September when it's supposed to happen is infinitesimally small. Uh, they're talking about postponements to November, maybe even next January. Uh, because how do you do this thing with no writers and no actors? Good question. So I don't know. I mean, as you looked at the field there, Bill, were there any things that kind of jumped out at you? Well, it's, you know, it's easy to get caught up in the snubs. Um, but, and, you know, that can be an endless conversation. But I do almost want to spend my entire allotted time in this segment just saying over and over and over again, Atlanta, 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 <laughs> reservation dogs, reservation dogs, reservation dogs. Where are those amazing television shows that got nothing? Um, I like a lot of the other shows that got nominated. I like The Crown. I like White Lotus, Succession, obviously. And, you know, I liked the limited series Fleischman is in trouble. But as always, you look at these things and you you just have to sort of scratch your head about where some of these these things are coming from and, and what gets overlooked. And there is something deeply ironic about that the Emmys are supposed to be this big love fest and it's all happening in the shadow, rightfully so of the more vile, cruel aspects of the industry. Yeah, and Helder, I have to say, yeah, Colin, I yeah, think sure. I, might have, I might have flubbed your layup because I also think the Emmys are like the TV guide. And so while it's great that things like Succession and White Lotus and, and those kind of big major projects get recognition, I actually think the role of the Emmys and other award shows is to be a curatorial voice for us, is to be a critic for us to say, 
look at look over here at this thing look over here at that thing so to your earlier point of like what are the other things that we might be interested in that we're not gravitating towards it's it's the emmys it's the oscars it's the tonys the golden globes those are the the opportunities where the industry says oh go go check out that artist or, or that piece of work i think there's something for you there and i don't think that they are uh stepping up to that to that uh, challenge no they're not although and i just want to say that uh, a lot of things have shocked me in the last six months. Somewhere <laughs> in the top 10 of things that have shocked me is the way that Tanisha Dugan warmed up to Yellowstone. I just like oh. didn't see that coming. So so Yellowstone- In 1923, yeah, I no, that yes. stinking thing. So n- none of that stuff, none of, the t- none of the Sheridan verse is anywhere in the Emmys. There are a lot of reasons for that. But to your point, I mean, you know, it's all kind of relative. I mean, there are a lot of people who've never seen Succession and White Lotus. There are more people who've seen Yellowstone, way more people who've seen Yellowstone than any of the kind of prestige stuff we tend to talk about in this show. Uh, so, I mean, it is, I totally agree. It should be a signpost. And, and certainly things like Reservation Dogs and maybe Mrs. Davis and, certain, and Atlanta. Hopefully people know about Atlanta, whether they're doing anything about that. I don't know. Um you know, but but yeah, so Helder, I don't even remember what question I was going to ask you, but I'm sure you have stuff to say about that. I mean, I was going to chime in on just the fact that I'm outraged that uh, while Andor received a lot of nominations for several things, none of the acting got nominated. I don't see the writers on it. And like, there's an amazing monologue that Stellan Skarsgård alone gives that like that scene alone deserves its own award for just being awesome and for being Stellan Skarsgård just uh being able to shout everything and uh and nail everything because that that scene alone just matches so much of what's going on with the strikes um and then the writing on that series was phenomenal but like i'm glad to see something like jury duty which was so under the radar in a way get recognized and kind of like almost plays with the idea of what we're talking about because it's like that could have been an ai thing because it's such a weird like and we could have just chalked it up to you know your standard uh crazy attempt at uh uh, reality television gone awry, um, which was you know taking this one guy and throwing him into all the all these uh, scenarios, but it's also creative because everyone involved was creative except for him, and uh, seeing that come together as the series that it was, like I'm glad to see that that's getting recognition and amongst several of the other things that rightfully deserve it. But yeah, I'm I personally unlike one thing I counter with Tanisha. Is just I don't see these award shows as needing as as a curatorial uh, venue the way Tanisha so eloquently put it, and I agree that's what I would like to see. But I gave up on award shows so long ago as far as, as just farce as them just self congratulatory and giving themselves whatever they want to their best buddies. Because once I heard how how James L. Brooks told a friend, my friend who's his production assistant, to yeah, just put down whatever one you like uh, for the Oscars, <laughs> just just select it. I don't care. Uh, as long as Jack gets his best actor nod for that's all I care about. It's like once I heard that, I'm just like, yeah, who cares? So, yeah, I mean, I, I, d- I do think I do think that we can get a little bit over cynical about that. I mean, first of all, it's fine to be cynical about the Emmys. But once again, we're, you know, a little bit we're on a panel show about, you know, popular culture. Uh, so Succession and The Last of Us and White Lotus and Ted Lasso. The, these are all kind of almost second nature um, most of us are pretty familiar with Barry, but I mean, you know, not that many people have seen the beer. I mean, it's increasingly popular and talked about in viral, but that's also within a certain class. Uh, certainly, <clears throat> series like Beef, which we just talked about here, is maybe not on a lot of radar screens. So, in I don't know. I just got maybe time to ask one more question, 
and and I don't even know who I should ask it of, but Bill, I, I guess I haven't come back to you in a while. The the other thing that just baffles me <laughs> in general, oh, Bill, you know this about me, but you know when I look at the comedy nominations, and it includes <laughs> Barry, which is one of the most dark, freaking, you know, blood-drenched things. Like, I get that it's funny once in a while, you know. And, and the bear that yeah, you just And the bear, to. which, is, I, I, which is like just an anxiety fest for me. Watching the bear, <laughs> I'm just nervous and worried the entire time. I'm not doubled over laughing somehow uh, at this stuff. Everybody's on a lot of trouble and is miserable. So I just feel like those categories, and also I just, I want to just inject and then build, you just kind of finish, finish this up. You know, when Helder talks about jury duty, See what I see. I, I see Bob Iger watching that and going, "Wait a minute, that's a that's a that, that's what's called free ad, ad supported TV. That, that's on a fast channel called Freevee. So Bezos and his people like that a lot. And I don't know. I think it's probably made for just about nothing compared to you know what it takes to shoot Andor. Um, so I'm I'm thinking they're looking at that and going, "Oh yeah, let's make sure that gets an Emmy nomination." Uh, but you know the comedy thing, Bill, it's just so weird for me. Yeah, it is weird. Like. I- like a failure to recognize that there's a difference between having some comic elements versus being a comedy. I do not understand how they like, did they feel like, well, we've got to slot the bear in somewhere because it is so good. And I agree. I love it. Um, But I certainly don't see it as a comedy and especially not this second season where they got into some pretty deep, you know, kind of like, traumatic family drama where you know i'm sitting there with tears streaming out of my eyes and not because i'm doubled over in laughter so sometimes it does seem like these things are arbitrary and i'll just finally wrap up by just taking a little you know snarky stab at daisy jones and the six and i don't know why that appeared on any of these lists because (laughs) i thought it was just unbelievably mediocre All right, that was we, we did a whole show about that, but um, and I agree. Uh, all right, we're gonna we have no, to take a both of you stab. Oh, really? You liked it? <laughs> I, I did. You know what the problem with Daisy Jones was? It is the, it's sort of the problem that I see with a lot of stuff, which is that stuff that's about entertainment. Like whatever that horrible show that Aaron Sorkin did, which was sort of about making a Saturday Night Live type show, except then when they would have to write something really funny for the fake show that didn't really exist, it wasn't funny because Aaron Sorkin doesn't know how to write that kind of material. And I just thought the music, <laughs> Daisy Jones, the music that that band yes. sang would not yeah, rock it to the top of the charts and change no. the world. It just Why wasn't. not just go full heart and just use Fleetwood Mac because you know that's what you're trying <laughs> yeah. to do. Right. Anyway, we can't we can't do we can't refight the Daisy Jones war. But 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 we, if we did, Tanisha, we would do it with love for you. Uh, oh, thank you. We love that you love all love. All love. All right, all love. So we're gonna take a break. We're gonna come back and talk about the most loving family in the galaxy, the Guardians of the Galaxy. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. 
loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. All right, so we're going to talk about, I mean, that's music, of course. The, the, the music of uh, Guardians of the Galaxy is kind of famously curated and also displayed in very retro formats, even as they whiz around uh, space in very futuristic-looking machines. Uh, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 is the end of that series, as far as anybody can tell. Certainly, it's the end of the series under James Gunn, its creator, or at least adapter, the guy who made it what it is, uh, and who was fired from this movie in pre-production, and then I guess rehired at some point. Uh, And right now, it's the number two movie in the country. Behind... And this is almost entirely because of the backing that this movie has gotten from Sean Murray. Uh, the Super Mario Brothers movie is number one in the country right now. I think you take Sean Murray's shameless promotion, his water carrying for this movie uh, out of this. Uh, I don't think this is even ahead of Little Mermaid. Uh, but but be that as it may. Be it may. So, Tanisha Dugan, I've given up trying to anticipate what you're going to say about things ever ever <laughs> since the Yellowstone debacle. Uh and, and if you ever told me what it was you thought about these movies, I have no, I have no recollection of it. So I think it starts with, do you have any kind of re- relationship with this franchise? Uh, I mean, the Guardians franchise, not the entire MCU. And, and if so, does this complete it or contravene it? Or just give me sort of where are you standing? What planet are you on in the galaxy? I'm on Counter-Earth. <laughs> and I do have a relationship to this franchise. Guardian of the Galaxy, but my relationship is sleeping through all of them <laughs> while my children and my, well, my son and my father have watched them. And it took me three shots, but I got through this one and like you all, found myself sobbing in places. I actually, the weird story, watched the end of this while getting my nails done and I'm literally crying in the nail salon mm-hmm. like like the one dramatic tear you know falling down my face <laughs> i just it it reminded me about how remarkable the human imagination is it really sort of struck me about like our ability to like manifest these things that we create in our minds onto the screen or you know if you're doing live performance in real life I just, you know, these these animals and these creatures and these, you know, just it's it it was remarkable and it and it did a lot of threading needles about so many of the things that are in the air right now, from the conversation about the strike and who's building the world to 
what is your family chosen or otherwise? What do you work for? What will you live and die for? I just, you know, I was reminded about why these big budget, you know, thrills and and fantasy movies are what they are and do what they do. It was, I loved it. All right. So, so to the to the point you're making, uh, and there's a particular phrase in this clip, I think, that reinforces the point that Tanisha just made. Uh, let's hear a little clip from Guardians of the Galaxy. I guess I should tell you, Chris Pratt uh, plays Peter Quill, a.k.a. Star-Lord. Uh, Karen Gillan is Nebula. Apom Clementiev uh, is Mantis. And Dave Bautista is Drax. Here we go with B1 Cat. A device. Set to destruct if anyone goes poking around inside him, or even if we use the med packs. Why would Rocket have a kill switch? Apparently someone considers him proprietary technology and sent that golden lunatic to get him. So he'll die if we operate on him? Then he'll die if we don't. There has to be some way to bypass it. It looks like there's a passkey that could override the kill switch. What do we know about where Rocket came from? He won't talk about it. Much of the tech was developed by a company called Orgo Corp. And there's a code on all of it. 89P13. He's got maybe 48 hours. Where are you going? Orgo Corp have to have records, right? Maybe they'll have a way for us to override the kill switch and save Rocket. They won't just give us that information. Well, that's why we're gonna break in. We kill anyone who gets in our way. Not kill anyone. Kill a few people. Kill no people. Kill one guy, one stupid guy who no one loves. Now you're just making it sad. I like that. First of all, I love what Tanisha said, because I think that's so true that this movie has all kinds of things that we're concerned with wrapped into what is a outer space superhero franchise. But I mean, I think Helder, this clip is pretty good, too, because it, you know, to Tanisha's point at one point. So Rocket, for people who don't know, is this kind of uh, biologically and and cerebrally altered raccoon uh, who has the voice of Brad Cooper uh, and who apparently has a kill switch inside him because someone considers him proprietary technology. Welcome back, SAG-AFTRA and WGA members uh, to this conversation. But but Helder, I think the other thing that it is, is it's really funny at the end. I mean, that's a very yeah. funny exchange between Drax and, and Peter Quill. Oh, it's fantastically. I mean, it's part of James Gunn's uh, charm and appeal as a writer and director is the way he can take these super heady and serious um, projects and storylines and inject it with such great like humor and heart heartfelt humor. I mean, he does it with sui- with the Suicide Squad, the one that he did, and then Peacemaker, and even his previous horror films like Slither and stuff that he wrote for uh, uh, Kaufman way back when. Um, but like he's able to transpose that and create this, like as Tanisha said, uh, a great little family that we decide to to make, like or create our, ourselves, and our, um, that he decided to generate this family from scrap as these people come together. But uh, yeah, like Drax, and you know, all credit to the actors, Batista, Pratt, and um, and uh, Killen, and then freaking Bradley Cooper as the voice of uh, of Rocket. It's so hard to you've watched the films and heard him it's so hard to like picture and actually i just see rocket i don't see bradley cooper in it and sometimes you might see sean gunn who does the actual mocap for it and himself finally gets credit for acting as as rocket in this um, where he's the actor that is on state on set doing that but they're so great and they make they are able to create such a magnificent like actual creature that feels real like even down to his and the friends that he that they make for them a floor teeth and lila the his little um group of other uh enhanced creatures that 
come straight from the comic book in a way, but are of course twisted by uh, by Gunn and and are kind of the just heartbreaking moments of of the whole movie. Oh, absolutely. As long as we're on heartbreaking moments, I, you know. Um, Bill, in some of the reviews of this movie just said it was too dark uh, and that the animals in cages and the vivisection themes and all this kind of stuff was just, uh, I think the Times said that. And at least I read at least one other review that and to me, this is their opera. This is kind of, you know, this is the the Guardians of the Galaxy opera, the Sweeney Todd. It's got a, it's got a quality mm-hmm. to it that it's not afraid to get very dark. It's going to pull us back from time to time with really snappy, funny dialogue the way they always do. And and Bill, I actually appreciated the fact that they didn't mind making me really upset. Yeah. So we're watching the movie, and at one point, I look over to Lori. She's sitting off to my left. I'm painting you all a picture here. You see what I'm doing now? Because it's radio. <laughs> I look off to my left, and Lori is sobbing. Like, not, you know, just like I'm I'm tearing up and you know, I'm doing the the Tanisha slow motion tear roll. Lori is sobbing, and she's trying to get our cats to come cuddle with her so that, you know, the, the vibe that it's evoking. Cat, cats from should not watch cats. this movie. This movie because would be very no, upsetting for cats. Not Do not let your cats because watch it. Anyway, continue. You know how we anthropomorphize our pets, right? And so, of course, this just takes it to a whole nother level. And even though you're crazy, if you have a raccoon as a pet, it still has that feel, right? With the big eyes and everything that we, that we relate to in in our pets so I she's mean, coons. <laughs> but <laughs> you know i i don't necessarily see it as too dark it's interesting to me colin that you like it because you've expressed like your concern about the serial comic and yet you know i think this film does that a lot because one of the things about the first guardians of the galaxy movie is it really did bring the whole comedic vibe full force and then that has become a marvel thing moving forward and this one as you say it balances out it's very yin yang with some really really light and some really really dark um i'm probably surprisingly the most ambivalent of of all of us about the film i liked it um but i'm kind of like more of like a b plus on it because um i'm not sure if it was a little bloated and maybe that's more what you mean that you saw positively as operatic in some ways. Yeah. I think first of all, you need to watch this movie a little bit with Tanisha's father, but also in her nail salon, you know, and I think the whole thing just pops. <laughs> it pops really, really different differently when you do that. Um, I, I think before we leave this point, I do think that the brilliance of the joy and the comedy inside uh, some darkness is exactly the temperature we're in right and so Mm, again mm. when mass media does their analysis of this work of course their job is the sedative their job is to say but where's the joy where's the fun i spend a lot of time in my media conversations being like why are we providing the sedative why are we drugging people outside of this moment and i think the brilliance of this movie is that it allows you to have the full range of emotions, but mm. fully inside of the fact that things are, I won't say the word, crap, 
Yeah. Now you said you, she just said that better than I possibly could have said it. My defense was going to be that you know the serial comic mode bothers me when the funny stuff therefore isn't as funny as it should be. Well, let me just let me just let me just finish up this point, Elder. Uh, the, the funny stuff doesn't seem as funny as it as it should be, and then the stakes because it's a serial comic thing also don't seem that big, right? It's not serious enough to take seriously or funny enough to be truly funny. This thing to. to Nisha's point, she put it so beautifully, goes out to these extremes. It's really funny when it's funny, and it's very yeah. worrisome when it's worrisome. That would be sort of... Anyway, Helder, yeah, maybe a last uh, comment uh, for the thing. Just to bounce off of it, or, and jump off of exactly what you both just said about the, the mix of the serial and the comedy, this is also coming from uh, much like Black Panther, except where that was a real death, this is coming from a character's death where the characters at the beginning are still grieving from the passing of one of their main characters that we'd followed through four other films that we felt that tremendous pain from as a, as fans. And again, just like the way they were able to like craft that, but then the that there's this one heartbreaking scene that I think I'm sure this is where Laurie was crying um, and don't want to spoil anything, but like Bradley Cooper deserves kudos just for that cry that he does in that scene that just watching that on screen was just uh, uh, watching it on the big screen was even just more um, gutting to like see that happen and, uh, and yeah. experience it. We're going to get to a break pretty soon. I do want to say uh, two things. One of them is what the hell is Sylvester Stallone doing in this movie? He's kind of oh like... <laughs> Yeah, it's also hilarious. <laughs> this cat, but, yeah. I mean, he's just like there at the beginning. He's there at the end. He was like, he could he could have been just tearing tickets. Enjoy the film. Yeah. <laughs> I hope you get a piece of that Marvel action. That's right. You know, yeah. saying goodbye on the way out. I hope you had a good time. Films. You know, at this point, I feel like he needs to just cameo like um, Stan used to do. Maybe this is the new. The new stand. So I, I did. I did want to do one <laughs> shout out to I think somebody who doesn't maybe because he's not part of the you know the regular gang, and that is the villain of this thing played by. I hope I'm saying this oh, right. Yes. Takudi Uwuji, um, mm. and and is like the second of these Marvel villains who is in fact. I mean, Thanos, the like the worst guy ever in the old movies that several of which I believe Tanisha got some very, very good sleep through. Uh, <laughs> but, um, you know, he has a very idealistic vision. He just basically mm-hmm. thinks, you know, it's going to be better his way. People are going to have a richer and more fruitful life if he kills most people. Um, and, and this guy also, he's trying to create a utopia and he's he he doesn't think he's horrible. And I think they do this really well. But this actor who's I think Nigerian British does a spectacular job with this role, uh, yeah. and it's too bad that <laughs> I don't think we'll ever see that character again. But it was a very nice job. He's definitely I mean, the best. His downfall is he becomes Ahab, right? right? Yeah. <laughs> um, After a raccoon. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. All right, we got to take a break here so the panel can make some recommendations to you. Let's take that break.
Today's show, as usual, was uh, technically produced by our technical producer, which is, I think, a very good system. Uh, Kat Pastor is our technical producer. Jonathan McPants produces this and pretty much all news episodes. Um, we're working on a, th- a thing where, at this moment in the show, in the future, we're going to be trying to tell you stuff that would be helpful to you in terms of listening to the show, finding the show, telling other people how to find the show. We're not ready to do that yet, but I will say that if you have Alexa, or let's say you want somebody who really likes Guardians of the Galaxy to listen to this episode, uh, if that person goes to Alexa and says, Alexa, play the Colin McEnroe show, Alexa will do that. Um, She'll play the most recent episode, and you can keep saying back one episode or something if you want to find it. Uh, I have to also tell you that if you want to hear Audacious, our sister program, Audacious, you have to ask for Audacious with Kion Wolf. Say, Alexa, play Audacious with Kion Wolf. Because if you just say Audacious, there's something. they seem like nice people on this other show that's called Audacious or Audaciousness or something. But what and what what uh, Alexa will say is playing Audacious with Shion Wolf. But that's fine. You get the thing. Uh, all right. Uh, time to make some recommendations. And so, uh, Tanisha Dugan, why don't you get us going? What are you going to endorse or recommend? I will. And I haven't done this in a long time. Uh, I'm going to recommend a performance happening this weekend. Uh, Liturgy Order Bridge uh, by Deb Goff as part of her Scapegoat Gardens um, company. She's doing prototype um, performances of her new work, which will be touring uh, in the next couple of years. And so she'll be at Christ Church Cathedral this weekend, July 13th through 15th. Um, I'm not sure where to go get tickets, but I'm sure if you say Alexa, <laughs> Christ Church Cathedral, Connecticut, she might give you something. Um, just briefly, um, some of the some of the creatives to my earlier point about this small state cranking out amazing creatives and thought makers and thought leaders. Um, some of the artists involved, Lauren Horn, uh, Arian Wilkerson is back from Philadelphia to join in this work. Jasmine Augusto, who a few weekends ago had a magnificent uh, immersive uh, experience called uh, Garden Gal. Um, so just some real amazing seedlings coming out of this place. Uh, and if you want to catch some work um, before it launches into the rest of the country and the world, uh, check it out this weekend at Christ Church Cathedral. And, Liturgy and, Order Bridge Scapegoat Garden. Okay, Liturgy Order Bridge Scapegoat scapegoat, scapegoat Garden. That's easy enough to say. Uh, and uh, Bill Usman, what are you going to recommend? I actually want to uh, recommend a couple of books related to an episode you did earlier in the week, Colin, on social media. And the first one is called The Twittering Machine, named after a painting by Paul Klee, uh, by Richard Seymour. And this was written before Musk bought Twitter. And it really lays out all the problems with Twitter prior to Musk. Yes, Musk has broken it even further, but it it wasn't totally pure before him. So that's The Twittering Machine by Richard Seymour. And the other one, uh, before we all get too excited about threads, is called Anti-Social Media, How Facebook Disconnects Us and Undermines Democracy by Siva Vaidyanathan. I probably should spell his last name, V-A-I-D-H-Y- a-N-A-T-H-N, which is all about all of the chaos that Facebook has introduced into our culture and political system. 
Yeah, I still feel we'll never know how things would have gone if instead of Elon Musk, if Thanos had succeeded in buying Twitter, if he had not been outbid, I, I just feel like we'd be living in a different world right now. Or we'd all be dead. Uh, all right. Uh, so, Helder, what are you going to recommend or endorse? Uh, so, I feel kind of weird endorsing this, but Secret Invasion by Marvel Studios, which uh, is kind of the <laughs> This is a minority to... viewpoint. This is, is a minority very minority panel. viewpoint we're about to hear. Even on but this it, panel. Uh, well, there, yeah, there's a couple of reasons that I know why it's kind of pet not great to be posting it just because of it does open up with an AI created um, piece that people have been protesting. And I agree with that. It is kind of crap. But the rest of the story actually <laughs> seems to really channel a lot of what's been happening with what's who's real, who's not, who's going. There's a couple of issues I have with it, but I think they're, you know, it's from the, one of the producers of um, and writers of Mr. Robot. So it's got that kind of really fun play with it and it's just fun to see sam jackson fun and, and he's also doing a really good serious job with um with giving nick fury a little bit more oomph at the end of his career um but seeing sam jackson come back and really just own the series as nick fury is great and ben mendelson is also awesome um so that's those that's my big one right now and then i'd also just recommend and endorse getting out there and enjoying our state parks in connecticut we've got some great ones all right, that's a great one. Yeah, and uh, I just as a, a opposing point of view, Tanisha, if you're finding that some of these Guardians of the Galaxy things aren't giving you the kind of sleep that you need, um, I would really recommend Secret Invasion on Disney Plus. That's where you watch it. Uh, yeah. I, I just, <laughs> I just feel the the REM stuff is really going to happen for you with this particular series. Um, all right, I'm just going to quickly uh, say that if you're trying to follow all this stuff that we're talking about with the labor unrest in Hollywood, I would recommend two things, two podcasts. One of them is called The, the Town. Uh, it's uh, it's from the people who do the Puck brand these days. Uh, it's a Spotify original. Uh, it's hosted by a guy named Matthew Baloney. He's having a guy named Jonathan Handel, uh, a lawyer who really knows this kind of entertainment labor stuff uh, very, very well. Uh, it's a great way to catch up. Uh, I'm a big fan also of a podcast called The Watch, which is uh, on the Ringer channels. Uh, it's Chris Ryan and Andy Greenwald. Andy Greenwald is, he has my same dyspeptic, uh, somewhat amused, somewhat fatalistic attitude towards modern entertainment, which he's very much a part of as a showrunner and writer. Um, he's way more eloquent about it than I am, so I, I really, really enjoy that. And very quickly, yeah, I guess I got time. Um, I've been uh, three sort of three quick book things. Um, I listened to uh, Dennis Lehane's Small Mercies, uh, an incredible performance, by the Love way, it. on audiobook by Robin Miles, who's been on the show. Uh, she is a, a performer. She's a woman of color, and she is doing the voices of these like horribly racist Boston white people uh, on the audiobook. My former teacher. She's amazing, uh, and she she was she's just amazing. she was just recently on our show on a show called Reading aloud if you want to hear her uh but she's terrific uh, in that i don't um, plug myself it's a great show yeah she's <laughs> she's uh that's right she's um she, that's right you're on that show i'd forgotten so um and, and also the um audiobook of demon copperhead by barbara kingsolver also really good i'm going back and reading a lot of adrian mckinty right now because he's got a new sean duffy book coming out those are uh, really fun as well all right we've got to go i've got i've spoken too long Vernon, I already said that one. Avon, Farmington, yeah, 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 yeah.